You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters.
the topic of visions appearances in Oxford, Harvard, Chicago, Pittsburgh, San Francisco, Toronto, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Quebec City, you know, litter cities like that, <laughs> Eugene, Oregon, Tacoma, Washington, Burlington, Vermont, Lublin Catholic University in Poland, and Leeds in the UK. He's given more than 55 lectures on the Shroud of Turin, which we'll be talking about a little bit probably, and is a member of the Vancouver Shroud Association. He is a member of the Ascension Anglican Church in Langley, British Columbia. So, Dr. Weeby, welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Thank you, Nick. It's a pleasure to be with you. Now, my audience might not know about who you are. I, I can tell them that Mike Lacona recommended I get you on the show. So, if you are like Mike, then you should be listening to what's being said here. But if they don't know who you are, tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing. Sure. Um, all right. Uh, well, uh, my story goes really back to my Christian home. Father was a minister. In fact, my parents were church planters. Uh, that wasn't the term used then, but that was their vocation. And um, when I left home to go to university and um, thought for myself, I, I discovered I didn't really believe. I didn't believe anything. Um, maybe I have a skeptical disposition. It could be, but uh, uh, the only thing that I really um, embraced and, and felt I'd never give up was the Christian ethic, uh, the humanitarian side of it, and also the uh, equality side of it. I, I admired those. And um, anyway, so it was the metaphysics that troubled me, and I didn't, I couldn't accept the Bible. Raised Protestant, you know, you're taught more or less to accept the Bible. If you're raised Catholic or maybe Eastern Orthodox, the authority of the church is, is maybe the biggest. But uh, if you accept neither, uh, what is the way to God? So um, there was quite a period of questioning, and, uh, and I skipped around in my undergraduate years, focusing on this and that, and then finally ending up in philosophy. I didn't know whether I could make a living in philosophy, but I went for it anyway. And I uh, did an MA degree, BA and MA degree at the University of Manitoba, which is a public university, and then I uh, had a um, what's called a Commonwealth Scholarship to Australia. This is available to uh, people doing doctorates uh, from one Commonwealth country and going to another. And the, really the only condition uh, upon it was that you return home. So I went into philosophy, and more specifically philosophy of science, uh, I thought maybe there were issues there that were relevant to the discussion of religion. And um, in my published work in, over the last uh, 35 years or whatever, I've uh, tried to make the case that indeed that that is true. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, Dave, and we're going to be talking about these visions and appearances of Jesus and... And, you know, as soon as we enter this kind of thing, a lot of people are immediately coming with the same kind of skepticism you indicated in your journey, Veda. And 
Yeah, okay. People have visions and appearances. The people have visions and appearances of many things, and we know their hallucinations so many times. So, really, at the start, why should we be taking the idea of visions and appearances seriously? Yeah, that's an important question. Important question. Well, um, I think that the topic is important uh, for several reasons. One, I would say that the New Testament itself, it makes the case for the resurrection in part, in substantial part, on the appearances. Uh, the empty tomb does count for something, but it's really the encounters afterward that matter. Um, when I was um, in my uh, undergraduate studies, uh, a theology bookstore was nearby, and I would buy books and so on. That's how I kind of got into biblical criticism, and that's what really uh, tore out the historicity of the New Testament. Uh, the Old Testament was too big of a stretch at the time, but the historicity of the New Testament was called into question. Now, the ordinary things on which the New Testament can be examined might be accurate. Luke is good about locating events in the time of different rulers. But um, I didn't think that being right about ordinary things uh, counted for a lot when it came to very extraordinary things, like the resurrection and, say, the virgin birth of Jesus. And, and so, um, and later, when I worked on the problems of confirming evidence, I uncovered a, a, a formal and technical argument that uh, supported this suspicion that there isn't the transfer of, 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 of um, plausibility from the ordinary data to the extraordinary. So that really meant, um, can we get more direct support for some of the extraordinary things? So while all this was happening at the level of philosophy, I mean, another thing was going on in me uh, concerning faith. Um, I met a couple of people who reported that they had had direct visual encounters, and it startled me, and I thought, well, maybe the biblical critics who are so hard on the resurrection, uh, they, they've got it wrong, uh, that uh, we should be uh, more charitable and lenient toward these texts and not handle them as we would like a court case. So, um, so I, I thought uh, on the basis of meeting a couple of people that the pursuit of the, of the topic you know, might be worthwhile, but it was in the back of my mind and I didn't really do a lot with it. Um, so I entered the life of the church and uh, was a believer, and uh, I would say was uh, slowly growing in confidence um, regarding the unique and exclusive Christian claims. And um, 
and then I um, I received a curious invitation, and I think it was from the Lord Himself uh, to do this work. Now, that sounds very self-congratulating. But, uh, can I tell you about that? Please do. Okay, it was in the in the summer of 1988. My wife Shirley worked at a school and both kids were in high school and so I was alone in the house and in the summer months I've often worked at home I have an office uh, at home and I was, I was there that morning well I went down at 9 o'clock and I began my day with a short meditation and uh, when I went to pray I, I, was, I was just filled with joy I I I felt such incredible uh, sense that the Lord was near. And um, all my prayer that morning was, is this you? And why are you doing this? Are you wanting me to pray about something or pray for something? I mean, prayer for me is, is it's work. It's, uh, lots of distractions take me in other directions. So prayer is work for me. Well, that morning, I was in this state of elation, which lasted about three hours. And I just couldn't figure out what was going on. And just just as noon came, just at 12 o'clock, uh, the thought came to me, why don't you investigate the experiences in which people believe that they've encountered me? And with that, when the thought entered, uh, the elation instantly stopped. And I've thought a lot about that over the years, quite a few years now. And my guess is that I wouldn't have taken the thought seriously had it not been preceded or accompanied with something that, that seemed otherworldly and uh, took me to another order of reality. And so that's... That's how the motivation uh, came to investigate uh, the experience. Well, I think a lot of us can also read back to what you said about prayer. And to me, it, it's work too. I was even talking to someone about it and said, I actually set a timer or I, I will be distracted. And I said, hey, timers are good. I'm all in favor of timers. And so those of you listening, there's your free prayer tip for the day. Like what you wear from it. Now let let's get to these kinds of uh, appearances of Jesus. Now the first ones naturally are in the New Testament, and they took place after the burial of Jesus, and after the tomb was said to be found empty. And we find a good number of them recorded in First Corinthians 15, for instance. So what what do you make? of these appearances? Are they visions? Are they hallucinations? Or did they actually see the real bodily Jesus? Well, I, I think that um, from what Paul says, and also from, uh, I consider the shroud to be authentic. Mm-hmm. And so the shroud hints at something having to do with the new body. And Paul speaks about, you know, Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but he was brought alive in the spirit. And that's enigmatic. It's mysterious, but it seems concrete as well. And so we go to the, so that 
Paul has his list, and then we naturally go to the gospel records. Now, biblical criticism has been so hard on just this aspect of the gospels, um, and this is what I believed, it, that there was nothing there. And I didn't really think that the rise of the church itself was very strong as evidence. I mean, we don't usually view uh, Mormon uh, beliefs to be accurate because the church has been growing quite quickly. The claims about Joseph Smith, we don't apply the argument that way. But, but when I got into when I got into the contemporary experience, I, I found cases which were somewhat like the New Testament cases. There was a fellow, now there's no account in the New Testament of someone being healed by the Lord after, after he was raised from the dead. Uh, but there was a case here, not far from us, of a Bible college student who was healed. He, he claims he's got all the x-ray evidence to back up his claim in medical reports, but he says that this glowing figure appeared at the end of his bed, and although he had had broken the vertebrae, neck vertebrae, he was told not to move. In spite of that, he sat up and he he grabbed the the hands or forearms of this glowing figure. I asked him, so did it feel solid to the touch? So did you and did you see uh, your hands touch what you felt them touch? And, and the answer is yes. I mean, so and we'll talk a little bit more maybe about hallucination, but it's, uh, it, uh, the peculiar things are that he felt what he saw, first of all. Second, he saw this radiant being, radiance, uh, so intense that he couldn't actually make out facial features. Um, third, very knew instantly who the being was. He said it was the Lord. And I, I think that in Christian thought, you know, it could be maybe the angel of the Lord. I mean, I don't want to get into that, but, but it looks as though sometimes someone is a messenger on the Lord's behalf, but anyway, there's a tremendous radiance, and, um, and and I think that even the, the tradition of the halo may be connected, I leave this for other uh, historians to address, but why the halo around the head of the Lord in, in art quite early on, and, you know, and, and then the fourth thing is that uh, I'll very beg to die. So he knew who the being was, and he, he said, take me with you, take me with you. He didn't want to stay here on earth. And he was informed in wordless communication that satisfying that request wouldn't be possible. And, and then the figure disappeared, and in the morning, and when Barry woke up, uh, he had no pain, the swelling on his head, which had was beginning to um, impair his his brain, brain organs, brain functions. That, that disappeared. And it took him a day to convince the doctor to let him go home 
and within a week he was back to his regimen of uh, running a mile or two. So it's so it's corroborative, I think. You know, when you started talking about someone who broke their, verte- their neck vertebrae and was in an accident, had Jesus appeared to him. I don't think you'd mentioned the name yet, but I I have your book right here, and I was looking at everything. That yeah. sounds like Barry. Yeah, <laughs> Barry. Did, got the point four. He said Barry. Like, yep, that confirms yep. it. Now, but what I'm wondering though, when we look at the New Testament account of the appearances, is that uh, Gary Habermas has told me before that for a while the reigning idea of how to explain the appearances was something sort of like a, a Jedi Jesus. Yeah, yeah. He talked about how at the end of one of the Star Wars movies, Luke Skywalker looks and he sees Darth Vader, Obi-Wan, and Yoda all together at a campfire, but he can see right through them. And apologies to any Star Wars fans out there if I've done something to butcher it. I'm, I'm actually not really into the series that much. And another apology to all of you out there already just told me at that point. But that was, he said, the reigning view right now. So, I mean, do, do you think these were just visions that the disciples had or do you you think we've got enough information on text that we can look and say Jesus bodily appeared to the disciples yes I would say that he bodily appeared hmm. I mean I know that in Luke you know there is the interesting question of doubts arising in the disciples eyes minds about what they're seeing and, and then he says you know well you know touch me Feel me. He says, see. I mean, he means, like, handle me and see that I'm real. Um, so, um, I would say, um, so this, this is, this is the, the view I, I hold and teach. Uh, I, I say that there is a, there's a public world that's open to observation and scientific testing and almost no limit except time and expense about how much we might do and, and the public the public world is a very objective world and this is the one from which we get these ideas of what is objective what is subjective what is real what is hallucinatory those are shaped by our encounter with the ordinary world that's just a part of everybody's life now there is another world, however, and um, this is the world of God and, and also other beings, spirits, including evil spirits, unfortunately. But it is also objective. It's an objective order. Um, now, what its actual constitution is, is mysterious to us. We want to use whatever we've learn through physics and chemistry and biology, especially, and maybe psychology, we, we want to use that information and impose it on that second order. But my sense is that the second order is, contro- is in control of us and of the circumstances in which it appears, chooses to appear, and to whom it appears, and so on. Now, there are some cases where uh, whole groups have seen what is, is seemingly the Lord, the, the Christ has appeared. This is, this is uh, certainly found, let's say, 
in the in the in the long tradition of the West. Uh, so it's the Catholic West and then the Protestant West. I mean, so there there are collective experiences. They're not very common, maybe, but they do occur. And the fact that something is collective, uh, collectively seen or or say filmed. I mean, we understand the mechanisms behind producing images on film, and and when something is collectively seen or it's filmed, and or even is 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 both felt and touched and so on, or is uh, able to be uh, checked out using other reality checks. Like there is another order there, and uh, it seems to be in control of us. So it's not like the public order that science examines, but it's objective. So the world of spirits, to me, it's an objective order. <laughs> it's it's a little dangerous, but I mean you can't you can't really live life and avoid it completely. One, the, the divine order or the diabolical side will make its efforts to penetrate our lives and, 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 and so we are part of that we we are spirit or, or we have spirits spirits uh, we, we in some form we survive the death of our bodies and face the creator uh, who is uh, judge of all so uh, so that, I mean that is the Christian message and then God has come in the flesh He's come in the Holy Spirit. God is triune. I mean, and so, so that, that is uh, Christianity is uh, stands for the reality of this largely invisible order, not wholly invisible, but largely invisible. When you were talking about this <clears throat> invisible world, I can't help but think of a biblical story about Elisha and his servant being surrounded by the armies of Aram and Elisha praying saying Lord open his eyes and the servant looks and he sees all these angels and flaming horses and such all around them and okay things look a little bit better now yes yeah so so ongoing evidence for the mysterious order we see in the Bible like gives it credibility, strengthens its case. It's it, interesting to me that the people that compiled it, the, those who basically collected documents in the early centuries until the, the time of the Nicene uh, Council, but it, it's interesting that they would have like, Gospels which have uh, disagreements on little points. And to me, the disagreement on little points is a mark of authenticity. They're, they're not fudging the books. They're, they're presenting the oral tradition as they know it. And, mm -hmm. and that, that's, an important, that's an important issue. So, so the, criti the critics have made too much of the differences. You know, when you talked about how people are going to come in contact with the spirit world somehow, when I was at this conference last week, Craig Keener gave a talk on... Can we today believe in demons? 
and such. Yeah. And one point he said was, if you go to the Anthropological World Day, where people are going outside and studying other cultures and such, if you disbelieve in spiritual beings, you're kind of treated like a flat earther at that point. Because this kind of stuff happens abundantly over Yes. Yeah. Yes, I, I, I do think that um, the paranormal side to the world, uh, which it is often maybe dark, although angelic uh, aspects are also present, it's, uh, it's really seen across time and across cultures. So it's not... Uh, I, I think that a very important phenomenon uh, has occurred with uh, near-death experience. Uh-huh. Near death experience is important because it it speaks to the kind of skeptical outlook that the West has developed and is teaching um, to everybody at university gets that 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 is the problem. But I mean, two hundred thousand cases a year in the U.S. alone, something like five percent of the U.S. population, it's roughly 15 to 20 million people, 4% of the German population. And it's quite interesting. I mean, I mean, it, it, those experiences, uh, to me, at, at, at a minimum, suggest that we, in some uh, form that we don't fully understand, uh, we, ex- we, um, we exist after the death of our bodies. There's mm-hmm. something. So the, the reality of spirit. Secondly, there, there is this encounter with being of light. I mean, and uh, the, may, maybe it's, what, whatever it is, um, there, there is moral accountability that comes through in, in these experiences. So, Moral account, uh, uh, accountability and and someone who has the right to kind of uh, evaluate and judge our lives. So so I mean not maybe not all of it is divine, but but yeah. there's certainly some of it is. So it's like it, the soul, uh, the moral order, and the existence of God are all being reaffirmed uh, in an age where. Those kinds of metaphysical claims can hardly be made in any university. Uh, I gave everyone a little preview of something coming up here. We're not going to be talking a lot about near-death experiences today, but if you are interested in that topic, please come back on January 9th. My friend J. Steve Miller has written a book on this topic on about near-death experiences, and so that's going to be the focus of our show on January 9th. So if this topic in- interest you, then be sure to come back for that episode. Now, we're talking about these kinds of things also. Again, I'm going to bring up Keener here, but he recently wrote, probably in the past years, this massive two-volume work called Miracles, which he has been on my show to talk about that one. And I'm guessing in many ways we can approach it kind of the same way we approach these visions and near-death experiences that it, it... it would be a bit strange for us to think that every account that we have of a miracle, a vision, and near-death experience on its surface is 100% accurate at where that's you as a deer. But the thing is that when you have so many of them piling up consistently, 
then you kind of have to wonder, okay, you know, some of these could be mistakes, some of these could be fake, some of these could be people wanting 15 minutes of fame, but to think all of them are that is rather problematic. Yes, I I agree. Uh, I follow a professor of philosophy from, at least he was at the University of Maryland, Stephen Braun, and he thinks that evidence can be usefully put into three categories. Um, The experimental is the familiar one, of course. And then he talks about experiential and thirdly, anecdotal. And by experiential, he he means really a category of claims that is sufficiently large to attract attention as as and and having some plausibility in it, even if not everything is. The anecdotal is the one-off claims, uh, too rare to be uh, frequently found among the people of the earth. And so, I mean, they may not, might not be uh, might not be mistaken, but it's it's very hard to kind of make an argumentative case using or focusing too much on the anecdotal. And so, for me, the visions of the Lord, um, they belong in the second category. They're experiential. And now the question is, are they, are they large enough as a, as, a, as a group? Well, so, um, they hard to say, hard to say. The study hasn't been completed on that in any, in any sense. But, but the near-death experience it is a wonderful category because it's extremely numerous and it's a cross-culture and it looks as if vision experiences in the medieval world might have been uh, of that kind. Uh, so uh, ghost encounters uh, arguably are another uh, phenomenon that occurs frequently across time and culture and deserves not to be dismissed easily. It, 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 uh, you know, you don't have to believe everything that's forthcoming there, but you can't just dismiss it all. And, and so gradually a, a kind of body of evidence uh, is building up and it's pointing in the direction of the, the view of the world really embedded in, in historic, orthodox, Christian faith. And and so the the visions and I mean in the in the book visions and appearances of Jesus from 214 I have just some examples from each century, but uh, mm-hmm. and, you know when we're talking about near death experiences and visions, another category I think comes up is uh, my friend Nabil Qureshi, who's been on before. He is an ex-Muslim and now a Christian apologist working for RZIM. And one of the things that led to his conversion was dreams. Yes, Where yes. he believes God was speaking to him in, in dreams. And if this was an isolated incident, where that would be some. But all over the Muslim world, this is starting to happen more and more. That Muslims are having dreams and sometimes visions and appearances of Jesus. Have you encountered any of these? You know, I've heard of them. I haven't met many people. Um, I had a student who told me about uh, an incident in California that a next-door neighbor was Muslim, and he had gone to Mecca, um, and it was a religious event for for him. And anyway, uh, 
when he came back, uh, Martin's family invited him for dinner, and and he looked on the wall, and there he saw the very famous uh, Warner Solomon's Head of Christ. I mean, billions of copies probably have been made, and he said to the family, Christian family, a missionary family, he said, you know my bus driver from Mecca? And the fellow said he had gotten on a bus, and the driver looked at him and said, you won't find peace here. And he was very puzzled by it, why the bus driver would say this odd thing to him, and he came home to California, and um, what he apparently saw was what Warner Solomon saw as, you know, the face of Christ. So, yeah, so uh, these bodies of evidence are growing, and you can see, like, like so in the Muslim world, arguably somebody with really deep roots in Muslim beliefs and, and having come to Christian faith uh, is in the ideal position to kind of research those, that kind of subgroup within the division and appearance class. But uh, uh, we see the accumulation of data, like a cross, uh, a wide spectrum here that's broadly spiritual in nature. And it is, it's like evidence. We're in an evidence-oriented world. And, uh, well, the Lord is... Uh, the Lord is catering to, you know, people's, people's legitimate desire for evidence. They want, you know, they, uh, there's somebody out of Birmingham, um, in the UK, um, Heathcote James, um, Sarah, Heathcote James. Well, anyway, she wrote um, in public media in the UK, asking people to submit stories of angel encounters. She got 800, and it's from a wide variety of people, um, all their, their own personal uh, angel encounters. So, I mean, that's, you know, that's, I mean, it's not everything, but it's not insubstantial either, 800 cases. Yeah. Let's look at history some, since you talk about the medieval period and there were several accounts of visions of Jesus. Now, there, uh, right at the start, I could have some some listeners who are Protestants too, in the sense that and I serve as a Protestant myself, might say you know, I'm very suspicious <coughs> of things that come with the Catholic Church. Anyway, yeah. and the, these are all Catholic saints, it looks like we were having these visions. Uh, shouldn't I be skeptical of that? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's... Uh, yeah, that's, uh, I mean, if we think of, you know, the, the church um, uh, roughly uh, 500 years ago separating into Protestant and Catholic branches, um, well, the people prior to that are also in our ancestry as Protestants. They contribute in their own way. Um, um, I... I I kind of go along with Wesley's view that uh, ongoing experience uh, should count for something. Uh, it, it, it probably shouldn't trump the Bible and what I would call the holy tradition. 
I think that there is a kind of holy tradition. We see it in the creeds. It's quite minimal in the creeds, but um, like the, the tradition, both Catholic and Protestant, it, it doesn't do anything, for instance, with Paul's remark in, in Corinthians about being baptized on behalf of the dead. Uh, two references to it in, in one verse, and uh, no tradition has really embraced this as significant. And, uh, and well, it's, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not terribly important, and we shouldn't fuss over it. We shouldn't divide over it. But the experiences uh, that are happening in, uh, across, the, across the field, I mean, uh, uh, they count. And I think that we must remember that the ancient and medieval worlds weren't as literate as we are. I mean, maybe some argument about how much literacy there was, maybe the 10% that's commonly tossed out, maybe that's because the countryside didn't have many literate people. There must have been enough literate people, though, to collect books and copy them and circulate them and so on. Um, but I would say that in that kind of world, uh, you know, uh, dreams and other unusual experiences might be more common because they don't have a Bible, and even if they had one, they couldn't read it. So how is God going to communicate to them? Well, he uses dreams. And, uh, and uh, you know, yeah. I mean, my, my, my nephew, you know, uh, has a friend, uh, and, uh, well, they, they live together, uh, but they live together, I would say, probably as husband and wife. And she had no Christian background at all, a nominal Jew Jewish background, but my nephew is Christian. Well, anyway, um, she had a dream, and in the dream, see, this is, this is like a personal story, right? She had a dream, and in the dream, she was in this wonderful, wonderful place, and she's riding along a street in a car, and a woman comes up on a three-wheeled tricycle. It's like an adult tricycle, and extends her hand and touches, you know, my my uh, niece's hand that's resting uh, on 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 the uh, on the door of, of the car. And with that, uh, my niece wakes up, and she she's been to heaven. And uh, uh, anyway, she she expresses this sentiment. You know, I want to be where you are. You know, um, after after I die. And uh, and she describes the woman a bit. And my sister brings out a photograph of my mother. And uh, she said, "That's the woman." So. So uh, she had never met her, and uh, and the other thing that was curious was that my mother had uh, fallen off a bicycle when she was young, and so she never and she never never rode bicycle again. She never rode bicycle, but there she is on a trike. Like what a curious thing to include. It's as though the identity is partly established by the by the incident that's part of her history. But I mean, uh, so, I mean, if we think of people who grew up without books to speak of, but they went faithfully 
uh, to Christian services, and yet incidents would happen where they maybe would disbelieve or wonder if it's all true, and uh, dreams are used. And I would say that the dreams of the Muslims at the present time, they maybe corroborate something of our early history uh, as, a, as a Christian church when the Christians in the early centuries didn't read, couldn't read, and were uh, impacted in, in, in other ways. That's how I see it. I, I did like <clears throat> how you said, this shouldn't trump the Bible, because <clears throat> I think there can be a too, too great a danger. I mean, Paul talks about people who go into great detail about what they have seen and heard and such. That people will hear about some near-death experiences and say, well, this is an authoritative account of what yeah. heaven must be like. No, yeah. no, this isn't necessarily. I mean, we could have had an experience they would have interpreted as heavenly. It could have been a real experience. That doesn't mean we have suddenly been given what Gary Habermas would call the furniture of heaven. Yes, yes, yes. <clears throat> yeah, the furniture of heaven, right, yes. Yeah. If we were looking at the medieval period, like you talked about, what are some of the visions and appearances of Jesus that stand out to you the most that if you were with someone and just want to say, hey, here are the main ones I think are the most convincing, what would they be? Uh, I, I would, uh, I think that I'd go to Teresa of Avila. Right. Many people go to her. Uh, she's interesting. Uh, she's uh, of Jewish background. Uh, she's a visionary and uh, a woman. She has three strikes against her. So why would she report these many, many encounters with the Lord and with other beings, other saints? And, and also she has diabolical encounters. It, it's quite a complex case, but she's written extensively about it. So here's a first-hand account. She's persecuted within her church for having these experiences, told to burn her library and, you know, is generally treated very skeptically. And uh, she persists in spite of all that. So uh, that's an impressive case, maybe one of the most impressive cases of all. I mean, we can compare her case, say, with uh, Julian of Norwich, the 15th century. Uh, they're a century apart only. I mean, Julian is also looked to by many people as kind of a model of spirituality. But when you look at the two experiences and set them side by side, it, it looks as though Teresa's are more, um, they're, they're like a bodily or a corporeal encounter with the being. In Julian's case, it's, that's less impressive. I would say. So, uh, actually, um, and like knowing more about present-day cases um, heightens our, our senses a bit. I, I used, uh, I think it was 23 variables to study this phenomenon. So, I wanted to know quite a bit about what they actually sensed. Um, there was a case in which uh, this young woman went to church with her mother was a with, with her mother-in-law. It was a summer a summer event, and uh, she didn't really want to want to be there. She just went along to please her mother-in-law, and 
you know, they were invited up for prayer. And she went forward for prayer. And she saw other people were kind of raising their hands, like during the prayer time. So she just copied that. <laughs> she had no particular religious sense. Uh, she'd gone to uh, Sunday school with Anglicans for a while when she was young. And, and there is this figure that appears. It's only about eight feet away, standing on a pedestal. And, but there's no pedestal in the building. And th th these are the curiosities about these experiences. Like, there's furniture that's added. Like, exactly why is is hard to understand. But uh, there he is, standing on a pedestal, and there's a glow, a, a glow of radiance uh, around his entire body, not just the head. Uh, I mean, we might say, well, this is just a, a memory, uh, you know, a memory of some previous uh, image she saw, and uh, now she's hallucinating. She's regurgitating a previous sensory experience. But it's curious that the pedestal is there, but not in the church. It's curious also that there's radiance around the entire body. It's like an oval. Uh, and, uh, and he's looking at her. And she thinks, oh, you know, why is he looking at me? And she looks around to see if other people give any evidence. So this is a kind of an instinctive reality check. Uh, will the same object be there when I look back to the front? And she did this several times. And uh, the other thing that was curious about this is that as her hands were raised in prayer and her eyes were shut, she felt something touch her hand. She opened her eyes to see who was touching her hand. Nobody was close enough. Like, what an odd thing. Like, uh, I, I often tell the Lord that he's, he's very interesting. And he does many unpredictable things. And it's, it's a terrific pleasure, really, uh, to know him and to fellowship with him and to be, you know, let in on little uh, insights into his, into his nature. When I was telling you about how this morning of elation ended with this and and I wasn't very sure on my feet about spiritual matters so I went to the pastor of our church he was an old seasoned man uh, had come through adversity he's maybe 60 at the time 60 years of age and I said uh, would you pray about something uh, with me or for me and I told him what it was and uh, he shook his long bony finger at me, he said, Philip, he says, this thing is of God, and I have two names for you. So that's how they, that's how the work began. He affirmed me so strongly, and I respected his, his spiritual discernment and sensitivity. He had gone through a nervous breakdown uh, as a young pastor and recovered from it, so I thought, okay, and you're, you're seasoned in you're seasoned in spiritual matters, and your your advice matters to me. Mm -hmm. And when we look at Saint Teresa again, before yes. we get to the modern readers, tell yeah, yeah. us about her visionary experiences and why you think they're legitimate experiences. Yes. Well, um, um, they uh, the experiences begin. Um, in a very subtle way, and she sees a hand, 
And that reminds me of a fellow in Ontario who saw an arm and a hand. It was actually where his arm and hand were, but it wasn't his arm. But anyway, so Teresa, Teresa, I'd say she's very, very serious. She's very devout. She's this is a woman in monastic life, and she's she believes in prayer and knowing the Lord and worshiping Him and so on. I mean, like, and and then she. It it, uh, it contributes, I'd say, positively to her life, in spite of the fact that there's opposition. So, also withstanding the opposition to it, that strikes me as a kind of mark in its favor. Mm-hmm. I, I think that this invisible world. I've been asking myself this question a lot. Uh, why is this invisible world as as obscure and mysterious? As it, as it seems to be, and my reply to that is something like this. I do think that it wants to show us that it is real, but it isn't primarily concerned about uh, giving us knowledge the way we have it in the sciences. What, what it is interested in is really in fellowship and interaction and uh, revealing more of itself to us and more of ourselves to ourselves certain uh, certain weaknesses and, and and sins or you know they they come to the surface i would say with teresa too there is this uh, very uh, deep uh, concern about you know uh, being holy uh, like uh, be holy as i am holy i mean uh, this is a this is this is hard, hard for anybody. Oh, and then, yeah. Uh, yeah, and she, like she, like her whole autobiography, it, it implies that that she's really serious about the knowledge of God, uh, and and she is a kind of witness to a later age, and that, that's what I think. Some people, some people have these encounters. Because it's like a call to ministry. Uh, okay, uh, other people have have them because it it addresses um, some some depression possibly. Uh, there was a case of a young girl, and she was actually a student at our university, but she had the experience at about 15, and she was in a youth group, and they they had a bonfire one night. They were sitting around the bonfire, and there's the Lord. He appears in the fire, and he's looking at her. I mean, and I, what an odd thing. And, and uh, she wasn't really serious about faith issues. And so this incident, it really made her think twice. And she was 15, which is a, a kind of important age, I think, 14, 15, 16. That's uh, the high school years are kind of an important period for many people and they, they can make they can make uh, big decisions uh, and, and, and so she did now she didn't she of course couldn't know uh, the accident that took the lives of her mother and father and a brother 
all one horrible accident. And she says she doesn't know how she would have gotten through that um, post-accident period if it hadn't been for the comfort that the previous experience gave her. So there are many things like you can't nail him down, (laughs) except we can say he's good. He's not safe, but he's good. <laughs> Lewis, yes, a lovely, lovely remark from Lewis. So they, they have many purposes. So like Teresa of Avila, uh, to me she's um, she speaks to um, she speaks to us now. Uh, she's got so much detail about what's seen, what's sensed, where is it in space, is it colored, is it transparent. Is it like the traditional likeness? On and on. These are questions that people legitimately want to ask. And in her case, she's really provided the modern age with a a fair amount of data. I liked also how you talked about how she held on to her fame in the face of opposition, even from within her own church. I'm thinking about how someone shared me that Mike Lacona said they saw in an article, and I, I know I've heard Mike said before where he's talked about the appearances to the apostles in First Corinthians 15 and elsewhere, and he says, liars make poor martyrs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, I think people um, they would give in under mm-hmm. under persecution, not always, but... Now, now, there are some people who might say, well, if she held on with so strongly, maybe she was just deluded. Maybe she was crazy. I mean, what would you think of that? Yeah, the, the worries about delusion and about, um, so, let's, uh, so let's talk about delusion first. Um, now, the people I interviewed were, I would say, they were reasonably ordinary, apart from one or two cases. I did interview a bishop in in Britain who'd been a professor of New Testament at Cambridge, and he had a doctorate from Cambridge. So he's, you know, unusually well qualified, and he did his studies in New Testament, actually. He found his faith slipping, and so he left the professorial vocation. But he was I believe he was 16, and in, uh, in, in school, and out of the blue, the Lord appeared and looked at him and said, follow me. Now, he didn't know that was in the New Testament. His background was Jewish. Actually, his family was prominent in the creation of uh, Israel as a, as a home for the Jewish people. So, I mean, but a lot of ordinary people... Uh, they have families, they hold down jobs, they have a responsible uh, place in, in a community and in a variety of organizations. Like, that's, that's not the picture of delusion, right? So that's not people who are like uh, being controlled by some malady or whatever the causes might be, and it could also be uh, spiritual, uh, that kind of... So so the delusion part doesn't fit with the ordinariness um, and, and, and holding down... 
So now, could, could the experiences be hallucinatory? This is, uh, this is the worry. Um, I, 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 I think about, about hallucination under two kinds of categories. And the first is, um, there's some kind of a, a psychological disorder that's producing this. There was quite an influential book written about uh, 1975 or so, and it was Julian Jaynes, and he was a professor. Uh, he was either at Princeton or maybe Toronto, one of, uh, uh, in a prominent uh, university, and, and he argued that the Old Testament prophets uh, misinterpreted the voice of God. Um, what they were hearing was uh, activity in the right hemisphere and through the corpus callosum, <laughs> the information gets passed on to the left, the speech hemisphere, and they think it's God speaking. It's not. It's just the other, the other side of the brain. I mean, and that was a book that had a good publisher and attracted uh, quite quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of attention. He thinks that stress is the mechanism that's generating these auditions, these strange. Uh, so I, I put that. Uh, so there's the case of of the woman uh, Helen uh, Besenson, you know, who's feeling the tactile sensation on her fingers, closes her eyes, feels it again, and then opens her eyes, and there's the figure, right? And she can turn around, turn back, turn around, turn back. So my question is, what is stress? Are stress levels, um, you know, repeatedly being turned on, then off, on, then off? So the tactile is felt in the same finger, fingers, and when she turns back to the front, the same figure is there. What? Stress is reduced when she looks to the back because the figure doesn't follow her eyes. And she sees the audience that she knows herself to be in, looks to the front, there's the figure again. Looks back, figure is gone. Looks back, I mean, is stress the mechanism? And you can actually see from just this one case that the stress theory doesn't have a lot going for it. It's just a sketch of something that people will supposedly find. And, and there was another book written by a professor who thought that the visions, visions of Mary were all generated by, you know, being not having, not having a sexual partner. And, and he can say these things about dead people because they, they aren't there to object. But, but uh, I mean, hey, almost all the people I uh, interviewed were married, and, and uh, I mean, you wouldn't ask people about their sexual activity. It's too far too delicate and private a thing. But we could say the same thing about about Helen Helen's uh, seeing the figure at the front, seeing the figure, no figure at the back. What this is, this is. Uh, sexual desire that's fluctuating like this and every time she faces the front you know she sees the same figure so the sexual desire is back to this identical level and and so on so the psychological theories uh, 
I've argued, uh, like in, in, in my, my 1997 book, Visions of Jesus, the psychological theories have nothing to offer. Nothing to offer. So, but they're popular. So some people say it's expectations, or it's hopes, or it's, you know, uh, it's um, um, deprivation of sleep and so on. Well, I mean, now hallucination theories, they, they're, more, they're more complex, and they're a little sketchy, but uh, they, they, there isn't a firm answer there, because hallucinations of, like, say, people in mental hospitals, I mean, I mean those are vulnerable people, but people study them, and the causes there aren't, aren't very clear. Yeah, I'd like to remind everyone at this point, you're listening to Dr. Phil Breevy. We're talking about his book, Visions and Appearances of Jesus. But if you're here next week, now remember, sometime in the week I'm going to be recording an interview of J. Warner Wallace on his book, God's Crime Scene. But if you're here next week, are you interested in the book of Acts, by any chance? Where if you are, we're going to have a guy on who's written a tiny little bit on the book of Acts. Craig Keener has written a four-volume work on a book of Acts. I mean, it, it, it's light reading. You'll go through it in a day or so. Uh, no, no. This is about 4,000 pages on the book of Acts. You know. And he's going to be coming on next week to tell us some, obviously just some, of what he's found. So next week, Craig Keener returns to the Deeper Waters podcast. For now, we're going to get back to Dr. Philip Weavey. Now, let's move forward to our own modern times and such. And you gathered some reports. First off, how did you go about gathering these reports? So the the, the first reports then came from my pastor who said he he had two names for me. And so those were the first interviews I did. And then I put an ad into um, the uh, paper of... uh, the Pentecostal Church in Canada. I mean, people think uh, people think maybe that Pentecostal churches are open to these kinds of experiences, and the answer to that is sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. But I got three cases in Ontario, and then I went to Toronto, and I went to their homes, and I did the interviews in their homes, and. Um, um, yes, that was an interesting part of the whole uh, study for me because I, I did one interview there near Toronto and I thought, this is crazy. Um, I've been an, an academic for 17 years and I'll lose whatever reputation I have if I have one at all. And so I, I but I had agreed to an interview um, about six hours by car near Sudbury uh, from Toronto, and I thought, well, I must honor this um, this appointment I'd made. So I got up and I started out uh, at about six in the morning, and uh, the presence of God was just with me in the car that day. It was the oddest thing. I would normally play the radio and just get a bit of sense of what the places I'm going through are like, but I I couldn't I just couldn't bring myself to turn it on. That the the sense of presence was so extraordinary, and it lasted the entire trip, 
And then I heard a story of what I would call uh, deliverance from evil and how the Lord uh, appeared to a woman who had been uh, physically and, I believe, sexually abused. No elaboration on that. I didn't get into. There, there are certain barriers in the interviewing process that one mustn't cross, and one has to build up some sensitivity to what would be appropriate, what would not be appropriate. Um, I think that the, the the holy realm has its own its own rules of of how what evidence can be collected, what cannot be, and so marvelous story of deliverance uh, and, and then and then the same presence all the way back so it's like 18 hours just in I mean I didn't see anything or hear anything but it's just the sense of the presence of God was with me in that 18 hours and it uh, confirmed for me that I should go on with the study and not worry about the results mm-hmm. not worry about my reputation that kind of thing that that I was being asked to give that up, if necessary, uh, for 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 the Lord, and so that I placed ads in different papers. I I didn't didn't add in the New York Times, and uh, that um, that gave me interviews in in New York, in Florida, probably Indiana and Illinois and Los Angeles area, that Oakland area in LA so like it was a very it was a very fruitful I also advertised in Christianity Today and it was a fruitful source so I did that advertising I went to Australia for a month or so and I placed an ad there in one of their religious uh, uh, news uh, magazines and I got some responses and I did the same thing did the same thing in Britain we lived in Britain in in 93 where I wrote uh, much of the original book Visions of Jesus it's more technical uh, than the Visions of Appearances but I did some interviews there as well and uh, so I I was trying to get accounts from different places obviously and not just one religious tradition so the people are from all over as most have some faith background and some are Jewish or they're nothing or Orthodox or Catholic varying varying kinds of Protestants it's all over the map mm-hmm. now when we were talking about these kinds of encounters also I liked how uh, one thing you said specifically in the book was there are people who have visions of what they say is God and you refer to visions of angels and such but you weren't specifically Jesus Yes. Yeah. Well, because I felt that the contemporary experience would help to rescue the New Testament stories, which are dismissed or minimized. I, I know that people, critics, some critics say, well, you know, certain errors are arising in the church, and so what Luke does is he takes a story of an encounter and, you know, he has Jesus eating food. He has the disciples touching him. Um, Those parts are just invented 
in in order for uh, you know erroneous ideas from Gnosticism uh, 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 arising in the church. And uh, I mean, well, you, I mean, you can't at this point in time, you know, that's going to be a hard case uh, to adjudicate. And all I say is, well, uh, some of the modern encounters are strikingly like what Luke is talking about. Don't be so hard on Luke. So I'm, I'm rescuing a little bit the appearance stories because the appearance stories um, concerning Jesus, they, they really mark him. I mean, it's in his resurrection, ascension, and glorification that his deity really is seen. I mean, you, there's a foretaste of it, let's say, in the, in the transfiguration event. But I, some people say, well, that's just a, you know, that's a misplaced story. It's a it's post-resurrection appearance. And, and I'm not going to argue that point. But really, the, the, the Christian faith, the Christian faith exists to uh, testify to the reality of a triune God. And, and <laughs> this includes... Not, not only the Father, but also the Son, mm-hmm. and this unusual incarnation uh, in a virgin. That's remarkable. And then, and then, I mean, that would almost be enough, maybe in some pe- people's minds, to to give him divine status, and it, and it might, kind of. But the, the resurrection is a more public thing, and and it really establishes resurrection, and then very quickly, the, the ascension and glorification. They're lo- almost like one event, um, but, I mean, they are. You can see a little bit of uh, uncertainty maybe about exactly when ascension occurred, but, but they, they mark him as divine. This is God the Son who became incarnate and now exists in some other form uh, that we don't we don't know a great deal about, but uh, but there's interaction with him, and so the contemporary cases they they shed a positive light on on the New Testament appearances. So that's the reason. Yeah, you mentioned the case of Barry earlier. There were also other cases that involved healing when the yes. appearances took place, weren't there? Yes, there was a case. Uh, you're part of the country, I forget which state, this is John Ocapinti from um, from um, Pennsylvania, uh, Scranton, and uh, he's in Bible college, very young and new in his faith, he's 19 or 20, just a young fellow, and he's in, in a, has a roommate in college, and Nathan is just all sick no particular reason, just he fell sick and uh, and John is in his room and here he sees the Lord uh, standing at Nathan's head uh, at the bed and Nathan wants to go over there and touch him touch the Lord, see if he's real <laughs> I mean he's young and impetuous, you know doesn't know maybe that it's a bit like the Barry case, very similar in age, also the same impetuousness. I mean, it's 
curious that the Lord would, you know, allow it. Uh, but in, in John's case, um, he said the Lord just reached over and touched Nathan's head, and John never did get to to touch him to see for himself. But Nathan at that point jumped up and went running through the the halls of the Bible College. I'm healed. I'm healed. I've been healed. So one touch, one felt the touch of the being that John saw. It's very complex. One sees but doesn't touch, feel. The other feels but doesn't touch. But like the timing of everything, all the sequence there. Uh, and, and I mean, we know a lot about causality, and it's legitimate to think that um, the Lord or his emissary appeared and accomplished the divine uh, healing. And these cases, when you have them, just like case of Barry, you can have them backed by medical documentation. But, you know, you could go to someone, they might say, well, you know, you can't do some sort of before and after documentation to show that Jesus appeared, but something has happened, and you need to explain it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, there are traces left in the space-time causal world. Mm -hmm. This is how that seems to operate. Uh, there's a lovely story on, 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 a, on an angel, angel encounter. Can I tell it? Sure. Okay, this, this took place in a Anglican church um, near London in Hartford, Hartfordshire. So it's not, maybe it's like 25 or 50 miles, maybe not 50 miles. But anyway, uh, an older woman is being baptized and uh, the font, and they do it by, by you know, the cup of water, the hand, handful of water poured over, typically three times. But anyway, the, the, the rector of the church is standing there at the font, the font's at the back, and the woman is beside him, and suddenly there is another figure that makes its appearance, and it, it's so unusual that the children come up with their mouths open, they're in awe of what they see, and uh, this being, they believe it's an angel, touches the woman, and she falls over, and then she is... Uh, brought back onto her feet and the and the baptism takes place and as this is happening the uh, the rector notices that people are touching their arms they're just kind of stroking their own arms and he understands why and um, he says that he has the sen sensation of warm oil being poured all over him and so uh, about half the congregation saw this figure and uh, and now the rector um, didn't want a specific identity uh, of the church to be made public he allowed uh, Heathcote James to contact uh, a reporter from the the Times of London it's got to be one of the most respected papers uh, in the English speaking world and so she was allowed uh, to interview the rector, people at the church, and there is the kind of agreement, you know, on the essential matters that you would expect, like of any phenomenon that took place spontaneously, little differences in memories maybe of 
this or that or the order, whatever, but the stories are totally consistent. Now, this was published in a local paper for us, the Vancouver Sun, and that was about uh, 15 years ago. But it, it's, a, it's a really interesting case, partly because I, I think that people that they actually search for God, they're really, they're serious, and whatever their, their religious tradition is, let's say we're talking about all of the, all of Christendom. I personally think that all the churches that teach that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, is God's son, and, and, and that he's raised from the dead and born of a virgin. I think all, all and he died for our sins, like all the churches, this Protestant, Orthodox, and Catholic, all the churches that teach and hold to that, I say, well, they're good. They're good. There's lots of disagreements and other things, but they're good. I mean, now there are churches that are specifically deviating just on this question, the identity of Jesus as Son of God. And I think it's terribly important. It's not something we can toy with and expect Christian faith to survive. It, 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 won't, it won't survive. So, so, um, so I, so I'm interested. In, I'm interested in Jesus because I want to know for myself whether He was the Son of God. Was He truly resurrected? Resurrected? And uh, my, my faith sort of uh, took a, a whole new turn when I got involved in the shroud. But I don't want to distract you too much yeah. uh, to another topic. Well, I like to remind everyone right now that uh, our show is listener supported. And support by donations to listeners like you who appreciate this ministry. It was great again to meet many of you at ETS. And if you've got the means to, I would really appreciate it if you would support us. So if you want to do that, just go to deeperwaters.ddns.net, which at the time being is our webpage. And there's uh, something on the sidebar that says, Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now if you click there, you'll get taken to a ministry of Risen Jesus. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you can make a donation there. I mean, you can send it to them and say, Hey, I want this to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And they will make sure we get it. It will be tax deductible. Now, I'll, I also want to point out something special to you that Risen Jesus is doing. Risen Jesus wants to take me on board to work full-time for them. And that also takes money. But they have been giving a matching grant till the end of the year of $25,000. So if you want to donate to them, that could also be, in essence, going towards us, because when they raise up enough money, then they're going to say, okay, that's it, it's time for you to come on board, and we will be there, we'll be moving to Atlanta, everything, and you're going to see a whole lot more probably coming from Risen Jesus. I'm already discussing with Mike the plans we want to do, and one thing he has said is, by the way, when you come on board, you have to keep doing your blog and you have to keep doing your podcast. So that is not going to change. Now, you can also go and buy some of my books that are available on Amazon. I've got, for instance, ones I've co-written, such as Defining Inerrancy or God and Natural Disasters or Groundless, a look at Dan Barker's Atheism. And then there's the one that I've written by myself, which is... A Creed for the Ages, a look at the Apostles' Creed and today's Christian. 
invent guys um christmas is coming up you know there could be a lady in your life that would really appreciate getting some jewelry especially if you're like me and you decide that christmas is a good time to pop the question which is exactly what i did and as you know listen to the show she did indeed say yes that christmas eve and if you go to my page there's a link about support us via purchasing jewelry where you click on that link and you'll get taken to premier jewelry you ran by my friend lena Clester. her site there access code is love and you can make a purchase you can pick up that engagement ring that your lady's looking forward to and whatever you purchase if you let her know if you let me know 25 percent of what you purchase will go to deeper water 25 percent so guys you get a good engagement ring and when you get that and you make your lady happy you can make a ministry happy at the same time and why not it's a pretty good deal now dr Wee, do you have a, any organization or charity that you'd like to see people donate to as well the one organization the besides Trinity Western University that I'm uh, working with is the Vancouver Shroud Association. Uh-huh. We have created um, uh, a set of museum boards and we've collected some artifacts. These are like replicas related to the crucifixion. And we go around the country and uh, do exhibitions. I often do talks with them and we have other speakers that but uh, Vancouver Shroud Association is an organization that is uh, trying to use the Shroud as a vehicle for making um, Christ uh, more real to people. Now, I was just doing an online search here. Is that found at manoftheshroud.org? That's it. That's it. Manoftheshroud, all one word, dot org, yeah. So if you all want to support the Vancouver Shroud Association, go to the Man of the Shroud. Dot org and I found us discussing it a little bit in the show, but I'm going to tell you that if you want to hear more of the shroud on February 13th, it looks like right now, it's that's tentative, but you can start marking your calendars, just put a tentative note there. We're hoping to have Mark Antonacci come on talking about his book, Test for Shroud. So if you're interested in the shroud or touring, then this is my show. Now, one encounter I do want to talk about that you described in your book was apparently one that got on film and yes. sadly the film is lost someone sold it or something but christ appeared at a church could you tell us about that yes so yes this is a an account that comes from the uh, the primary uh, person as well as other people in the congregation uh, the primary person is kenneth logie so he passed pastored a church uh, for many years in in Oakland and um, I, I don't I don't know that the incident took place in the church that he last pastored he's passed away now but uh, it's somewhere in Oakland um, there were many uh, kinds of phenomena occurring there um, so for instance um, hands would appear on the wall from which uh, oil was uh, dripping and so on. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a charismatic kind of church, and yet the phenomena 
that occur are, are things that you see in broadly Catholic history. There'd be crosses as well, that sort of thing. And, and um, incredible perfumes for the whole sanctuary. But one fellow told me, he's now a, a pastor, or maybe he's retired, but uh, he was a He'd been, he was in the Navy, I think, and he came, he came to Oakland from San Diego and stayed overnight. And early in the morning, uh, he was awakened by something. And, uh, and the aroma was so fragrant, and he and others began to worship. And as they did the worship, the fragrance intensified, and these objects appeared. So, I mean, some explanation needs to be given for why somebody would have a movie camera with them in church. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the sort of thing that people would maybe ordinarily bring. But there were these phenomena occurring at Kenneth Acquired. It was a, a Super 8. There, this was the, it's in the 50s, so the technology is... You know, it's fairly rudimentary. Uh, you'd insert a, insert a, uh, some film, um, that could last maybe two, three minutes, two, three minutes maybe, mm-hmm. and uh, it was like a capsule that you just insert into the camera that have developed. Well, anyway, um, one Sunday morning, uh, he had a woman, uh, give her testimony. This is something that, occurred in in the church frequently. Uh, She was a Catholic lady, and she went to Catholic services, but she also went to the services that that Kenneth Logie was conducting. And uh, she'd been in hospital, and so the whole congregation knew her and wanted to know how she was, what had happened. And uh, anyway, she'd been in hospital and um, had seemingly died but uh, and, and so her body was sent down to the temporary morgue in the, in the hospital, and, uh, and, then a, and then a mortician came to pick up a body, and you know the, the, the fellow at the, at, the, at the morgue in the hospital pulled her drawer and you know checked the face, and there was the flutter of the eyes. They'd made a mistake, so she sent back up. Revived, and, and so she's in church telling her story. But while she was unconscious, uh, she said the Lord appeared to her in the, in the unconscious state. He was dressed like a like a, like a priest with the white collar and the and the black the, the black suit or the black uh, robe or whatever. But uh, dressed like a priest, and he looked at her in the dream or in the vision or whatever, and said, have faith in God. Anyway, it was a May morning, and she went and, uh, up to the, uh, the, um, the, uh, the, yeah, the front, you know, the, and stood on the, uh, stood on the stair there to tell her story. And she was telling her story, and as she told her story, she disappeared from view. Now, she'd been wearing kind of a, a gray or a black raincoat. It was May. The weather was kind of uh, rainy. And, but she disappeared from view, and in her place stood this man, glowing white clothes, 
and like very much the traditional likeness. So anyway, the uh, the organist had the movie camera, and Kenneth had said to him, "If you see anything unusual, you know, you film it." So he was trembling so much that he had he put it down on top of the camera and pulled the trigger and, and caught this. And it's it's a moving figure now. Uh, so I saw this film in uh, 19, 1966. 1966. So I, I was um, just 20, nearly 21, and I met Shirley, whom I later married. Son of God and so on. So 
what's the evidence base for this? Mm-hmm. And well, I knew that the church's existence itself was evidence, but uh, it didn't impress me that much. And the Mormon case, you know, uh, made helped me discount the reality of the church. And so, I mean, obviously there's the texts as well. Mm-hmm. So the, the church and its tradition, the texts. And I, I, I thought, well, resurrection is too far in the past. There will be nothing uh, of any significance, you know, in the post-biblical era that could ever shed light on those documents and, and give them more credibility. So, so the vision, the visions made me think, oh, oh my, oh my, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe Bultman is wrong about the New Testament. Maybe there's more there. Maybe it does speak to. And then, and then the shroud came along. And I was that, as a person interested in evidence, I thought, oh, this is curious. What? Something could be deposited, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago and only really come to light in the 20th century. So, mm-hmm. so I followed uh, the evidence around that. And all this time I was working on the, prob- the problem of Jesus, the mm-hmm. identity of Jesus. Mm-hmm. That had started for me at about six, 1965, 1964. I was 19 or 20 maybe. And, and the, I realized that I had no convictions about him, and I, I couldn't see any route by which I would ever reach Christian church, you know, on, on his reality. As I said, I, I was impressed with, I was impressed with the Christian ethic, but that was all. And, and I wasn't an atheist, exactly. I just didn't think that God was terribly interested in the world, maybe, and actors in it, ever, maybe, whatever. So, so that, that was so... I was gradually coming to to what I call historic Orthodox Christian faith, and then the shroud was sort of entering the mix. And by by 1996, so 15 years later, uh, I had come to think the shroud was authentic, and that's when I started giving talks mm-hmm. on the shroud. And I don't know if you know Craig Evans at all. Oh yeah, he's been on the show before. Oh, good. Yeah. So, anyway, somebody had notified Craig, asked him if he would do a talk on the Shroud. He said, well, how would Philip, how would you do it? So, so I agreed to do it, and I prepared the, the first talk and gave it in 96. And uh, I know that by that time, I had it settled in my mind. Um, now, there, there was, uh, I used to get challenged, though, when I did these talks. I've seen the Shroud, have you? Well, you know, I mean, it was it was only being exhibited every 25, 30 years uh, during that period. So, you know, you were pretty lucky to see it. Um, so in the year 2000, um, it went on exhibit and a conference was uh, organized near Rome in Orvieto. And I, I submitted a paper and uh, I went to the conference on the Shroud and along the way, I went to see the shroud quite naturally, so uh, I, I wasn't really prepared for what happened there. Uh, I, when I first saw it, one thing that impressed me was how much blood there was on it, and none of the photographs I'd seen really prepared me for the amount of blood that is on it. And as I was first looking at it, I was 
very struck by this thought, oh my, I might be looking at the blood of the eternal covenant. Mm -hmm. That gave the whole, this gave this uh, kind of uh, holiness and, and solemnity. I was all by myself on that beautiful August morning, and there weren't lineups to speak of, and I spent the next half hour in the cathedral just looking at the shroud. And, and then something happened that's, you know, it's weird, but this internal voice, like something spoke to me. It was the shroud or, anyway, but there were three things that were specifically said, and they were maybe just like about a minute apart or something like that. But the first was, it was said exactly like this, the resurrection's real, Philip. And my full name was used, and the little lilt at the end, it was firm and friendly. I, I, I was shocked by this. You know, what, what is this? Is this you? Is this you, Lord? It's always the question, is this you? And then, and then uh, a minute later, a minute or so later, uh, a very interesting remark was made, and it's in the if-then form. If this man had such a remarkable end to his life, then the very remarkable beginning that's ascribed to him is possible. It was said just like that. And the if-thens are so gentle as you can't get to the second part unless you go through the first. And I realized instantly that I never had never accepted the virgin birth mm. and that I knew of no evidentiary route that would take me to the virgin birth, but I thought that the virgin birth, like it, it was a significant component of his identity, and all of a sudden he solved the problem for me. <laughs> he solved the problem and he brought this internal conviction. It's, I mean, so to me it's Holy Spirit speaking. Holy, Holy Spirit I think is is interested in advancing us in the faith. And so we go from, you know, from the shadow into the light. The, so the third, make, let me complete this quickly. So the third was in the form of a question. And the preamble wasn't said, but it was all hanging in the air. This man's remarkable. Who is this? And then the question comes, and why would he die? And I took it from that in prayer later that I was meant to um, ponder and meditate and, and enter into uh, his sufferings and, and appreciate them more deeply in terms of what he brings. He brings salvation. He brings, secondly, deliverance from darkness. And many believers need, need that. They're, they're dark aspects of, that have entered their lives and he, he brings and I'm not making that exorcism I mean some might but, but he brings a deliverance from darkness he brings healing um, um, it's not maybe always in the form I, I have a certain disability and I said to him recently I said I know that you can, I know that you can heal this you know I, I, just because I don't ask a lot about this. That doesn't mean I don't believe that you can heal this. And I thought he said, well, I'm interested in healing the spirit too. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
And then and the, the last thing, he, he, he comes to bring completion. Um, Hebrews talks about it as perfection. I like the completion uh, term a little better. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think that this is what's happening, and that's what I was being taught there. Now, so that's when I, I came to really orthodox, historic, Christian faith regarding the person of Jesus there in Chirpin, Someone Sorry. Could, someone could say, don't we know, though, that the shroud is a medieval forgery? I mean, we've, uh, we've had people who've been able to paint the image on the shroud, so there's nothing remarkable yeah. about it, is there? Yeah, well, I, I, won't, uh, I, I won't go too far. Um, uh, what's, what's most remarkable, uh, I mean, obviously, that there's a lot of blood on it, and it contributes to the overall effect. But the image itself of the man uh, consists of little discolorations in the little fibrils that make up a single thread. And those are so fine that if they were done by human hand, it would be someone standing, daubing a brush in some chemical and then touching the shroud and kind of burning it, because that's what it looks like. It looks like a chemical burn, but their brush would have only a single hair, and that would be uh, thinner than a human hair. Moreover, because the shroud image disappears when you actually look at the shroud itself, you have to stand more than six feet and away. Ten to twelve is kind of optimal viewing, so you have to have a painter who's got that long a brush, and he's daubing something, and he's, and he's creating an image in reverse, because when you, when you photograph it and look at the negative you've produced, it's clearer than the shroud. I mean, ooh, that's crazy. So mm-hmm. human hand can't do it. Mm-hmm. It's fine. The image is too fine, far too fine. Now, when you talked about the blood on the shroud, I'm very curious yeah. at this point. Has anyone ever done any DNA tests on the blood on the shroud? Not to my knowledge. I I read that the, that the blood is probably too degraded for DNA to be done. I mean, it's AB blood type, so and, and which is more common in the Jewish population than the rest. So I mean, it, that the blood does point has high levels of bilirubin in it, which is a pigment that's secreted after you know torment and so on. No, nah, nobody, no medieval painter thought of adding bilirubin to the blood. <laughs> it, yeah. it didn't even know it existed. So, yeah, no. Now, the, when we're talking about the shroud also, isn't there some with negative images of a shroud supposedly that a medieval forger could not have pulled off? Yeah, yes. Yeah, it's, it's the reversing of dark, dark and light which mm-hmm. the shroud image exhibits. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, that nobody knows how any medieval I don't know that that we can do that easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the reversing of light and dark in the image, that, that's a mystery. The second thing is, if you take those little uh, pixel-like, the pixel-like dots, and you plot them as amounts of vertical relief, uh, vertical and high and low and so on, you actually get a realistic, fairly realistic three-dimensional form. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not something that photographic images do not have. They only show color variation, not mm-hmm. distance variation. 
Mm -hmm. And also, I've seen on your page that you've got some, a page of a Vancouver Shroud Association, you've got an expert on pollen. Yeah, now, isn't it something unusual also about the Shroud that they, it has pollen on there, but it's exclusively found in the Jerusalem area? Yes, yes, most of the pollen is from Israel. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Moreover, there are, this, this is, this mystery makes the mystery even greater, but, uh, there are flower images mm -hmm. that that's published in 2010. Mm -hmm. Avanoam Danin, and he's foremost at the Hebrew University in Botany in identifying the plants of Israel. Mm -hmm. Now, also, aren't there supposed to be some coins that are imaged on the shroud? And apparently, the coins. A lot of people were wondering because they had misprints on them, and then we found some of these coins that actually do have a misprint on them. Yeah, yeah. The coins are a nice example of uh, the challenges that face anyone looking at the shroud. Like uh, I, I'm, I'm not as convinced as some others that there are coins mm -hmm. up there. So I, I, I mention it when I do my talks. But I, I don't put a lot of emphasis on it. Uh, I think that um, I, I, I think I think the probability that there are coins is uh, reasonably low. It, it might be like ten percent or five percent. I, I don't give it a big probability. And isn't it the case also that the shroud it's got the wounds? or the blood coming from the wrist of a man in the shroud. Yes. Whereas a medieval forger would have put it in the hands of That's a man correct. in the shroud. Yeah, yeah, that points to it's not being medieval. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, then, are, are there also any non-Christian scholars and such who look at the shroud and think that this isn't a forgery? And even if they don't say this is what Jesus was buried in, they say, we, we don't know what it is. Yes, this is Denim's position. At least it was in 2010. He says, I think that the person is Jesus, but I don't know how the image was formed. And he doesn't accept the supernaturalistic explanations that some offer. What What do you think when someone gives you that kind of position? They say, you know, I'm not sure what it is, but I really don't think it would be anything otherworldly and such. And what would you tell them? Well, I I would tell them my own story um, concerning the Shroud, if they're prepared to receive it. Um, um, different people are at different points on on this pilgrimage to, to faith and, and uh, Assurance. I think people are looking for assurance and, and maybe even certainty. Uh, certainly, they're looking mo for more than, you know, a belief that they just happen to choose. They want a belief that has some something behind it, at least. And 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 uh, so my my thinking is that God isn't opposed to the evidence. But he's just not, that's not the, not, that's not his major suit. <laughs> he, he, he wants relationship 
mm-hmm. and still use evidence to nudge people in 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 a direction and, and through that the fellowship and relationship is established and begins to grow and mm-hmm. that's where we see we're, we're spirit beings and we're communing with our creator and who's making he's making us more human arguably mm-hmm. yeah. What what do you think the takeaway should be from us? As we're getting close to a closing point, people are yes. here. Uh, we've heard a lot about visions and appearances yes. and Jesus and such. I mean, what what's the takeaway that you think we should get when we're considering visions and appearances of Jesus? Yes. So I would say that uh, so the the important pillars of Christian faith it it, it is. It is texts, holy texts, but also a holy tradition that more more or less agrees on on central points and then and then leaves others to the periphery. And then the third thing is that there is ongoing experience that is in the trajectory of events we see in both old and new testaments. The New Testament isn't out of sync with the old, I mean, but it has some new material, and the ongoing life of the church includes uh, an experiential component. Uh, that was Wesley's view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's kind of my view, that the experiential, uh, yes, it has some value. Um, it, it, shouldn't, uh, it shouldn't trump everything. Mm-hmm. The, the holy tradition... And there were people that selected the books that became canonical, both old and new, right? I mean, right. these are holy men and women of God. They, they're sorting and sifting. No, the letter to Peter, the letter to Philip, or something. No, 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 don't keep that one. But, uh, you know, the epistles of Peter, oh, yeah, yes, they're very important. Keep them, keep them. So that was happening, that tradition, so the text and then ongoing experience. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but guarded like, and uh, kind of uh, overseen by uh, people who are, are not gullible and they are experienced in, in sort of things of God, ways of God. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of strikes me that uh, what Craig Keener has done for the miracle accounts in the Gospels, it looks like you've done for the vision appearances in the Gospels and in the First Corinthian correspondence of Paul. Do you think that would be an accurate representation? Now that's fair. Like I, I sometimes, I sometimes say that. Well, you know, when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and said, you know, God has chosen you. Like that, I don't consider that as quite the miracle that, that say the her conceiving the child. Uh, just because of the, the presence of God in that supernatural way. Like, that's miracle. And so when when Moses threw down his stick and it became a, a snake, like, that's miracle. But when an angel appears, that is a miracle for me. It, it, um, so I'm kind of working in a domain where I'm trying to argue or show, look, there are other beings that inhabit uh, the cosmos, 
and uh, and fortunately the, the greatest of them is good and working for our good there are other things that we have to also deal with contend with but so I, I I'm working on phenomena that are not obviously miraculous although I mean people use the term in many different ways and I, I respect that but but I, I'm trying to say a case can be made for the reality of God and other spirits and this includes the resurrected Lord mm. well, Dr. Weavy we are coming to our wrapping up time unfortunately do you have a blog or a website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more about you and your work yeah, they should just contact me at my Trinity Western University mm -hmm. uh, we, uh, website. The website will take them quickly to my. Uh, I haven't. Uh, we do have some uh, papers and so on uh, put online there, but that's kind of developing. But they can contact me easily enough and find me that way. Mm -hmm. I like yeah, people know the book is Visions and Appearances of Jesus. And looking online right now, on Kindle it's nine ninety nine. On paperback it's thirteen seventy. Could that go on sale for Cyber Monday? Maybe I can't guarantee you. I'm going to say I'm going to be watching Amazon very closely on Monday because I've got some uh, some uh, purchases I want to be making. Um, Doctor Weavy, do you have uh, any uh, final words you'd like to leave with the Deeper Waters audience today? Well, I I would like to just say that. I respect and applaud what you're doing, and I wish the great blessing of God on you and guidance and in, in, for you and your family and everybody. Well, Dr. Weeby, it's been great having you on here, and hopefully we'll see you back here again sometime. Absolutely. Well, I'd like to remind everyone that next week we're going to be talking about the Book of Acts with Craig Keenor, who apparently the word brevity does not exist in his vocabulary. So, if you want to hear about Acts, come back here next week to have a good conversation about it. Now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off until next week. <laughs>